Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church. We're going to begin by entering the prayer at this time. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that he did go to the cross for us and he died for our sins. We thank you that you raised him from the dead on the third day. We thank you, Father, that you have given us your spirit and that you have placed your spirit in our hearts and we're in union with your son, Jesus Christ. And you are you are our father. We are adopted children. We thank you for the word of God that's alive and powerful. We thank you for one another, the body of Christ. We ask this morning, Father, that as we continue to study the gospel of John, we may fall more and more in love with your son and also to understand better the plan that he executed for you and what it means for the entire world. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand at this time and we will sing a congregation song. Man of sorrows, what's a name for the Son of God who came? Ruined sinners to reclaim. to say And you may be seated, and we'll begin this morning with a couple of announcements. All right. First of all, there'll be no service on Sunday, February 12th. I'll give you a heads up on that. Uh, Secondly, I wanted to let you know that uh, we hear from Pastor Adams every week, which is so cool. Um, He always extends his greetings and the greetings of his people to us and ask for prayer. And so this morning, I want to pass those greetings on to you and continue to ask for prayer for him, his congregation, the widows and orphans they support, and the lepers that they take care of. So we want to pray. We want to thank him for all that he does and, and send his greet. I send his greetings this morning, as did Mark. All righty, let's begin. The title of today's message, of course, comes from the Gospel of John, and we're now going to begin chapter 12 today. So if you would turn there, to chapter 12, verse 1, and we'll get started in just a moment. John chapter 12, verse 1. Again, the title of today's message is Six Days Before the Passover. Time is getting close to when Jesus will go into Jerusalem and then be be arrested and then tried and then sent to, to die on the cross. All right, let's begin. John chapter 2, verse 11. 
Jesus, therefore, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving, but Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. The large crowd of the Jews then learned that he was there and they came. Now, not for Jesus' sake only, but also that they might see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. But chief priests planned to now put Lazarus to death also, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and were believing in Jesus. Six days before the Passover and the clock's winding down, it was the father who kept the time the clock for the hour when the Lord Jesus would be glorified by going to the cross. And now that hour is fast approaching. And this morning we are going to see the responses of two people to this impending nightfall. One of those people was Mary, the sister of Lazarus. Lazarus, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Mary, who was always at the foot of the Lord. Mary, the sister of Lazarus, we're going to observe closely her response to the fact that the hour of Jesus' death was quickly approaching. The other figure, though, this morning is the opposite. The other figure is Judas, one of the 12 disciples. Now, everybody, even even non-Christians, knows something about Judas. And of course, it's not good. It's 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 terrible. And this is what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the incredible contrast between two disciples, at least in the sense of two people who were followers of Jesus, heard him speak, saw him perform miracles. Both Mary and Judas did exactly that. And yet, and we've seen this before in the Gospel of John, we're going to see this night and day, light and darkness difference between two people. And now with getting closer to Jesus. It's two, two of his disciples have gone these two absolutely diametrically opposite ways. Now, notice I called Judas one of the 12 disciples. I just want to point out that in the John's gospel, he never uses the word apostles. Okay, he it, Rather, he typically uses the expression the 12 when he wants to refer to what we call the 12 apostles. I'd like you to see that in just a minute. Go to John chapter 6, verse 67 for an example of this. That actually involves Judas as well. Look at John chapter 6, verse 67. John 6, 67. So Jesus said to the 12, there it is. Jesus said to the 12, those are the 12 apostles. John doesn't call them, call them that. He just calls them the 12. Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Remember, this was when almost all of the followers of Jesus didn't want to follow him anymore. Once he talked about the fact that he was they were going to eat his flesh and drink his blood. And once he talked about the fact that no one can come to him unless the father draws them, they they did. They rejected that all of that message. Most of them, but that's what the twelve stayed with him. Again, in verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of eternal life. We have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And Jesus answered them, did I not myself choose you, the twelve? And yet 
one of you is a devil. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, again, one of the 12, that's the expression, was going to betray him. It's interesting that early enough in the Gospel of John, we already have John telling us who Simon Iscariot really was, and Jesus as well. He made no bones of it. He didn't try to hide it. He said, one of you is a devil. Now, John, of course, as he often does, provides a little editorial comment by saying he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Because as of that time, the other apostles, the other disciples, didn't know that Jesus was talking about him. But one can imagine that Judas did, unless he was even more blind than he, than we think he was. And so again, though, John calls the, the, the apostles the twelve. And there's something else here. Notice in verse 71, he says, now, he, now, this is the commentary of John. Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, Judas, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. John hardly ever mentions Judas without adding that he would betray Jesus. And he's not alone in this. If you were to do a concordant search of all the times that Judas is mentioned in the Gospels, you would find out that the other three writers also do the same thing. No sooner do they mention him that they add to the fact that he was going to be the one who would betray Jesus. Now, of course, the Gospel writers, including John, wrote several years after these events occurred, in some cases 20, 30 years after. And so they're reflecting back on Judas. And of course, they know what he's going to do. And of course, Matthew and John experienced and observed what Judas did to Jesus Christ. And the others knew well. I mean, Mark was very close to Peter, for example, and heard about this many times. And you have to say, you have to think, why would they always mention that? And the answer is simple. The answer is, is that what Judas did, his betrayal, was so heinous so abominable, so hideous, that they could never think of him in any other way. Whenever he came up, it's automatically thought about his betrayal. In fact, Jesus said to him that it would have been good for him if he had not even been born. That's in Matthew 26, 24. It was so evil what he intended that Satan entered into him to help him carry out his hideous, abominable task betraying the Son of Man, betraying the Son of God, betraying the one that he walked with for three years. So Judas becomes synonymous with betrayer, right? And even today, to call someone a Judas is to call someone who has betrayed a close friend. When somebody betrays a close friend, he's called a Judas even today. It's a reminder of how terrible that was. That's Judas. And then there was Mary. Mary loved Jesus so, so much. But not only that, she was the true disciple in the sense that she listened to him. And then he, and she believed what he had to say and she acted accordingly. And that's what Jesus said. That's my disciples. My disciples are the one who hear my word and obey. Hear my word and act accordingly. That was Mary. For example, and this is actually very key to what we see this morning and what she's about to do, and that is that she when she believed him. When he said that he was going to be killed in Jerusalem, she believed him. When she said that he was going to be killed in Jerusalem, when he said it, Peter didn't. If you, I'm not going to see the passage today, but Peter said, Lord, I will never allow that to happen. And of course, Jesus replies, get behind me, Satan. In other words, the idea that, 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 the, that the apostles didn't understand, wouldn't recognize, wouldn't tolerate the idea that Jesus would die showed their ignorance of his true mission. And, and, and they were incapable of accepting, as it were, the negativity, the, the nightfall of what it meant to follow Jesus. And, and he, of course, they're not alone. They're not, you know, most people don't want to do that. You know, Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me. And most people don't want to do that. Today in our churches, they hardly ever mention most of them, the, the death of Jesus Christ, the cross, and why he went for the sins of the world. You see, in order to accept the fact that Jesus would die, and this is Jesus who is the Messiah, whom they believe was the Son of God, and he says he's going to die. See, that is, a, that is a, a total rebuke of the entire human race. 
including the disciples. Why would the Son of God, the Messiah, who we always knew was going to one day come and set up the kingdom? I mean, that's exciting. That's what they wanted. That's what they desired. And then to find out that he is going to die, he's going to go to Jerusalem, and the elders and the high priests and the Pharisees are going to turn on him and put him to death? Why? And, of course, there's only one answer. And that is that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Most people don't want to face that. Most Christians try to hide that most of the time. It's too bad. I and mean, that's why one of the reasons why we celebrate the Lord's Supper every month is so that we can bring that into remembrance. It's central. It's the core. What it means to be a Christian is to understand that we're sinners. Christ died for sinners. That means he died for us. And it is the ungodly who believe that God blesses the ungodly, the sinner who simply believes the truth of the gospel. Even, of course, what it means about them. That's the message of Christianity. It's not the message of religion. It's, it's not the message of our culture. It's not the message of many, many, many so-called Christian denominations and ministries. But it's the gospel. It's the truth. She believed him. I mean, I mean, when, she, when, when he said that he was going to head to Jerusalem and there he would betray, be betrayed and put to death, she believed him. And she also knew, remember now, Bethany is about two miles away from Jerusalem. That's where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. And if you recall, not just about a month before that or so, Jesus wasn't in Judah. He was in Judea. He was over across the Jordan, Bethany beyond the Jordan. He had gone there as sort of a, as a way to get away from all the turmoil that was in Jerusalem surrounding him. He knew it wasn't his time. But then he said, I'm going back. And his disciples said, no, we don't want you to go back. Again, their total misunderstanding. But when he came back, he was now on his way to Jerusalem. What did that mean? It meant that he was going to die. And Mary accepted that. Not only did she accept it, but she acted accordingly. So she believed Jesus when he said that he was about to be killed in Jerusalem. I want to give you an example of what he said. Please turn to Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. As usual, Jesus is very clear. He's very specific. He makes no bones about it. What he said cannot be misinterpreted on the face of it. Anybody who would listen to this and hear it would know exactly what he was saying and exactly what he was prophesying. So the issue isn't the message. The issue isn't, gee, it's too hard to understand. The issue is, I don't want to accept that. In any event, look at Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. And Mary knew that that hour was now fast approaching. So what happens? He comes back and they they, they hold a supper for him in his honor. Lazarus is there. Lazarus, who and died and was in the grave for four years. The brother of Martha and Mary was raised from the dead. He was at the supper with the Lord Jesus. But what a moment. What a moment. You could say that this was this in terms of his public ministry. This was like the, the, the highlight in terms of him finally getting the honor he deserved from the people that he loved. And yet he's about to leave Bethany and go to Jerusalem where he would be abused by the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and then raised again on the third day. Since Mary believed that, she recognized something, and that is that this dinner that they're holding, that it was probably on the Saturday before he went to the cross. I mean, I mean, if you think about it, when he said that, when, when John says six days before the Passover, that's pretty much what it comes down to. It was, it was probably held... Um, well, their Saturday, I don't want to get into but their Saturday began Friday at nightfall, right? So it was probably right before the Sabbath, and they were having this dinner for him in any event. This dinner might be the last opportunity 
for Mary, who loved him so much to show it, who understood who he was to honor him and to worship him. And so she did. She worshiped him with the honor he deserved. Please, let's now go back to our passage this morning in John chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Let's see what she does. Out of love, out of love for the fact that this one had rescued his, their, 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 her brother Lazarus when he was already dead for four days. The one that she knew was the savior of the world. She believed that. She, this is the Lamb of God. This is the Messiah. This is the Son of God. And, and he was there with them. Jesus, therefore, again, verse chapter 12, verse 1, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany where Lazarus was. Again, this was, this was the start of his return one more time to Jerusalem. You know, John in his gospel highlights Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem. The other ones, the other, uh, what we call synoptic writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, didn't talk about this. It's so, it's actually very educational to kind of piece those together, kind of look at the things that, that, the, that Mark and, and, and Matt, Matthew and Luke said, and they're pretty much in tandem in terms of the overall structure of the events and timing. You take that, and then to take John's gospel and then put it right in there, and it fits like a glove. I guess I could show it this way. But if it fits like a glove. They, 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 but, so they, also, they all had their job to do. But John's job was to focus on the ministry and the events that happened with Jesus in Jerusalem, not simply the last week of his life, but throughout his ministry. And it was centered on the Passover. John always mentions when it's the Passover. Jesus had already appeared in Jerusalem for two of the Passovers, as well as the other feasts. This would be his last one. Jesus, therefore, verse, verse 1, six days before the Passover, came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Just like John cannot mention Judas without talking about the betrayal, he can't mention Lazarus with Lazarus without mentioning that Jesus raised him from the dead. Why? Because it was another mind-blowing event that they would never forget, and they understood the significance of, and they understood the significance of him being there. As we're about to see, so did a lot of other people. And then Lazarus becomes the focal point. And then Lazarus becomes becomes an instrument by which many come to believe. Not, not, not only just hearing anymore that he was raised from the dead, but seeing him alive. And so the chief priests and, and the Pharisees, they're, they're beside themselves now. They realize that it's not enough that they kill one man for the nation. They're going to have to kill others, too, especially Lazarus. Okay, so that's the setting. Verse 2, so they made him a supper there in his honor, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus, the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. I'll mention briefly that all four gospel writers write of an event where a woman comes and anoints Jesus with costly oil, okay? But they're not all the same event, okay? In fact, the, one, the ones that, um, that Luke records is totally a different time and location earlier in Christ's ministry, okay? And then Matthew and Mark um, mentioned that, that there was a woman who came, and it was during the last week of Jesus' life, and she anointed him with oil. They say that she anointed him with the, on the head. Um, here, John says it's six days before the Passover. They say it's two days. So it's it's possible, in fact, probable, that they're two different events, okay? Probably the same woman, okay? Probably, probably in stages that, you know, John talks about it six days before, and Jesus says, she's saving it for my burial. The other two, the other two talk about it two days before, and Jesus says, she has done this for my burial. In any event, that's just, that's just so that you can place it. If you think about it and go to other gospels, you can kind of see the relationship. 
it, it, what's important though is what Mary did. Okay, it's not not so much when or you know so forth. Those are those are those are specifics and they're interesting. But the key is what did she do? Well, verse three is what she did. Mary then took a pound. That's a lot, by the way, of a very very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, a fragrance that filled the whole house. John mentions that detail. You know, in the Bible, the fragrant aroma is associated with a costly sacrifice. That's why John mentions this. It was a costly sacrifice on the part of Mary to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to see another example in the Bible where the fragrant aroma is associated with a costly sacrifice. I'd like you to hold your place in John 12. But now let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1. Ephesians 5, verse 1. Paul is going to write, write about three different elements of what he's going to tell the Ephesian church and by extension us. I'll point them out to you. Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. That is quite the challenge. Don't you think to be an imitator of God? It's kind of intimidating. It's kind of like when Jesus said that your virtue has to exceed the virtue of the, of the scribes and Pharisees. Or even more to the point when Jesus says you got to be perfect like your heavenly father is perfect. It's quite the challenge. And of course, from the other writings of Paul, we know there's absolutely no way we can do this ourselves. By our flesh, there's no way. And so the only way we can do it is by 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 having the Holy Spirit sanctify us. And we always got to keep that in mind lest we become intimidated and discouraged by some of these things that are said um, as far as what we're moving towards. In any event, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. And notice this, walk in love. Walk in love, okay, according to a pattern. What's that pattern? Just as Christ also loved you, and what else? And gave himself up for us. See, that's the standard of love. Jesus sets it. Jesus, God the Father, and Jesus set, set the standard by loving us so much when we were their enemies that Jesus gave himself up for us. He gave the ultimate what? Sacrifice. How? Out of love. Mary gives a very costly sacrifice. How? Why? Same thing, out of love. We're going to see this in a minute. The definition of love is something else that we can observe and take to heart again today because I think that we need to be reminded of what love really is. I think that so often we put that we forget this and, and we, fall, we fall short of it, perhaps not because we want to, but because we've, we've lost sight. We don't have the motivation anymore to love the way we ought to love, which is what? As we, we are sacrificial in our love. We are to be sacrificial. That's what God did. So how, how we imitate God, not, not because we have his sovereignty or anything like that, but his love. See, there are some things about God that are beyond us totally. Sovereignty over the universe, beyond us. Omniscience, knowing all things, beyond us. Love, we can love. See the difference? But but we need to understand what God means by, by saying you are to love one another. And, he, and we have it here. Verse 2 again. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And how did he show it? How do we know that he loved us? He gave himself up for us. All of him. His entire person. And it was an offering and a sacrifice to God, his Father. And what, what, how does Paul characterize that as a fragrant aroma? The imagery comes from the Old Testament when they would sacrifice the animals. And then the, you know, if, I mean, if you've ever been, um, well, I'll throw out this example to a Brazilian restaurant where they have all the meats and they come out. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, right? But the aroma is unbelievable. Or, or perhaps you're going to a, uh, a pig roast. 
which I've never been to, but I hear is popular down here in South Florida, right? And you're right there, and there's the fire, and oh man, it smells wonderful. You go. So in other words, there is something about um, sacrificial, or or in our case, not sacrificial at all, but the meat cooking, and the aroma is very wonderful. So it's an image. But it's a reality of saying what he's talking about is a sacrificial manner of loving. And that's what we see here. And it's the same thing that Mary did. When you, you could say quite simply, that day Mary lived up to the standard. She lived up to the standard that Jesus set the bar for loving someone. Walk in love just as Christ also loved you. And what's the standard? Gave himself up for us as an offering. Sacrifice. See, true love is sacrificial. Mary, we're going to see in a moment, sacrificed in several ways. In fact, every way she could think of in order to demonstrate her love and her honor and her worship toward Jesus. Mary lived up to the standard. Please go to John chapter 15, verse 13. John chapter 15, verse 13. Jesus is going to tell his disciples directly. His public ministry is ending at the end of chapter 12. It's done. And so then he moves to what we call the upper room discourse, where he's simply speaking to his disciples. And now finally we have representatives, as it were, of, of where things are going to go after Jesus is raised from the dead. And of course, that's where we come in, right? The church. And so so if you want to say, where in the Gospels should I go to get instruction concerning the church? Not Israel, okay, but the church. And it's John chapter 13 through 17. Let's check it out right in the middle. John 15, 13. Greater love, there's our subject. What does it mean to love? What is the greatest love? How can we love an imitation of God? And it's very simple and very powerful and very difficult to do. Notice, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Lay down your life. You see, that's a challenge. It's talking about not a gesture, not a token, not I'll get to it someday. But no, on a day-in and day-out basis, giving of yourself everything you possibly can, that's love. And when you think about that, because we're not omnipotent and we're not omniscient and we're not the son of God, we have a limitation. Let's just be real on how we can do that, who we can do that for. I mean, the idea, I mean, yeah, are we supposed to love others? Yes. But is it possible for us to love everybody this way? And the answer is no. No. For the simple reason that if you give everything to somebody, you don't have anything else for anybody else, at least for a time. Now, I'm talking about it in terms of our our ability to participate directly. Of course, when we're together as the body of Christ, right, there's a love there that surpasses understanding. And that's, of course, in a sense, that's the greatest thing is the love that God has for us and pours into us. Okay, but there's also a manner in which we can live that out. And in some cases where we're called to do so, we got to we got to live up to this standard where we literally lay down or figuratively. What I mean by that is that you may come to a crossroads at some point in your life where you recognize that you have to put your life in danger for another person. Right. But that's not the only way you can lay down your life, right? You can also lay down your life in a sacrificial way. Gee, you know, I would like to do this with my time today, but instead I'm going to sacrifice what I want to do for the benefit of somebody else. That's love on a smaller scale. Or, you know, I have these resources that I could use for my own benefit, but I know somebody is really in need and I'm going to take of myself and give it to them. That's love. I could protect my reputation by exposing somebody who did something because other people think maybe I did it. But you know what I'm going to do? I'm not going to do that. You see, I'm going to risk my own reputation so that they can be protected. That's love. It's hard. (laughs) It's hard. It's and, and the way that we're called to love 
the good news is that it's supernatural, which means there's no way. I mean, if you sit there today, please don't do what I do, which is to go back in your life and say, I failed here. I failed there. I don't know if I can do it now. Just rest in the fact, the truth, that this is supernatural when it comes to the standard that Jesus in other words, we can't do it alone. I mean, Jesus in this same chapter just finished saying, without me, you can do nothing. You can do nothing. But it is a willingness to say, I would like to be able to do that. I want to love as God loves. I don't have the strength, but I know that God does. And if he, he'll put me in a position where I have the opportunity to do it. That's what that's 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 what we are to be aware of. If nothing else, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends or as John would later put it as a follow on. By the way, first John is a response to the gospel of John directed towards the church. Okay, so if you want to understand first John, you need to go and see what came before the gospel of John. This is a perfect example of this. Jesus says, in chapter 15, verse 13 of the Gospel of John, greater love is no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. That's forward-looking, that's perspective. John comes on the scene, says the same thing, but with a different perspective. He says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us. It's no longer conceptual. He actually did it. He laid down his life for us. And then notice, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. You see, you see, being a Christian, see, in the in the Gospels, we get this this standard like like if you don't forgive your brother, God won't forgive you is another example of that. And you look at that and you say to yourself, well, that's that's really hard. Then you come and you find out that he's already forgiven you of all your sins. And now what seemed very difficult to do in in light of what God has done for us now becomes should can become a spontaneous response that's what mary did right she she just spontaneously did the things she did all right um things that demonstrate the depth of her love right but she did it spontaneously in other words it wasn't a religious ritual to her that day as a matter of fact it went against all the religious principles of the day and, and cultural ones as well we'll see that in a minute but, but if we allow it to be, it can become a spontaneous response. Just like we saw that, that, that Peter said, we believe, and then he adds, and have come to know. You see, that's the, that is the virtue of hearing the word of God day in and day out basis, putting it into practice. Not only do we believe it, we've come to know it. And that's how we can come to the point where we can love this way. You know love by this. That Jesus laid down his life for us. We know that. It's a fact. If, 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 we're, if we're aware of that, if we're honest and we recognize the, 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 the dimensions of what it is that he forgave us of. See, that's where awareness of our sinfulness comes in. We shouldn't be guilty about it. We shouldn't be discouraged. But we should be grateful that God has sent his son to, to take care of the sin problem for us. Jesus said one time, actually to the other woman, right, not Mary, but in the Gospel of Luke, who, who had demonstrated her love in a similar way, he said, she loves much because she has been forgiven much. And that's why it's important for us to be humble about how much that we've been forgiven of. It's another thing people don't want to do. It kind of goes against the grain of our arrogance and our self-sufficiency to think that way. We know this, though. We know love by this. If you want to know love, you got to understand that Jesus laid down his life for you and who he is. That's how you know love. Therefore, in response, we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That's the standard. Mary lived up to it that day in Bethany. But let's look at the definition now. So now we can apply this specifically to our own lives and see what the, what, what the definition is and then, then consider how it relates, how we're challenged, how we're called to love to love this way, to love, okay, not according to our culture, right? True love is not taking a selfie and sending it to your best friend, although that's okay to do, 
I guess. No, true love is to ultimately to give sacrificially. You see, this is what this is what Jesus says. This is what God says. It's not selfish. Paul's going to say the same thing, right? True love is gentle and kind and merciful, thinks the best of others and so forth, to give sacrificially. And here's the, the thing about sacrificially, what it means is out of your substance. Jesus illustrated it in a somewhat exaggerated but accurate way when he talked about the widow. You know, we sometimes call it the widow's might. She had a, like pennies to live on and she gave it to the t- in the temple. He said, that is what we're talking about. That's worship. Because she gave what she had to live on. We seldom, I think, put ourselves in a situation to do that. Let's just be honest. Let's be honest. Right? How often have we said to ourselves, I'm going to take what I need to live on and give it to somebody else. It's a high, high standard. And yet that's exactly what God did without holding back at all for us. To love is to give sacrificially, laying down your life for the one you love. It's a test of love that whether or not on a human level anyway, if you want to say, do I love somebody? This test is simple. Are you willing to love them sacrificially, laying down your life for the one that you love? By the way, men, this is exactly the standard that the Lord sets in the in the in the book of Ephesians for husbands. Right. Lay down your life sacrificially as Christ laid down his life for the church. It's so simple, but it's not the kind of thing you can skirt out of. You can't. I mean, it's it's consistently defined this way in the Bible. Love sacrificially out of your substance, out of your time, out of money you could otherwise use for something that's important to you. For the one that you love. That's how you know if somebody if you want to say and flip that around, if you want to say, does so and so love me? What's the test? Have they given sacrificially to me out of their substance, laying down their life for me? That's the test. Right. It's not. So it's not drinking buddies. Right. It's 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 somebody who has, has demonstrated that they are willing to. Give things to you that are a sacrifice for them. Okay. I think you get the point. But you need to hear it again and again. I do. I was I was challenged. I was humbled when I studied this week and I just considered it. And again, it's it is so, it is something really powerful when you actually see a person doing this it, 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 through the word of God or, or even directly. I mean, I'm sure uh, if you've been if you've been involved and in the lives of other Christians who are actually care what the word of God has to say and have taken it to heart, then you I'm sure you've seen this. And I think you've probably been like this. That's none of my business. That's up to you to discern. But it is the definition. It is the standard. And why? Well, ultimately, it goes all the way back to God the Father. Look at John chapter 316. You probably don't even have to look at it. It's the most popular passage in all of the Bible. You know, it's a it's a passage that I used to remember when I was a kid. I would watch a football game and I don't know who this guy was, but he had a rainbow afro and he would stick up John 316. I'm old, so you probably don't remember that. But I remember that. You know, I think didn't Tim Tebow have that somewhere on his. Yeah. Okay. so but you know what's interesting about that? I sometimes get a little bit concerned about the sort of flippancy and popularity even. Because I think people have long since stopped seeing it for what it is, the meaning of it, the power of it. And so we need to do that. I try to do that. You know, when I go to a popular verse or passage or like Psalm 23 and I go to it and, of course, I can recite it. I actually did a rap song on it. When we had it. We used to have the summer camps with the kids. But how often how, how, how lately have I gone to it and said, what does it really mean that I can say the Lord is my shepherd? Right. Same thing here. God so loved the world, everybody, everybody that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever simply believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That's love. You see, he gave completely sacrificially. The best thing that God the father had in the whole universe was his son. And he gave him for you, 
for me. And not only that, but he did all the giving. And what did he what did he say? Here's the way in which you have eternal life. Simply believe. Simply believe that I have done this for you. Simply believe. The ungodly person who believes. The prostitute who understands how much Jesus forgave her of and believes in him. That's that's all that's what God is looking for. He's looking for that response. That's it. This is love. God started it. We love because he first loved us. Mary got that. And we're going to see right now that she held back nothing. Nothing. She recognized what Psalm 49 says, that the redemption of her soul is costly. And therefore, she's not going to hold anything back. And the anointing Jesus with that perfume was costly for her in several ways. First, she sacrificed her respectability. You know? Like God the Father, by the way. If you if you take seriously the, the uh, prodigal son parable that Jesus taught, he made a, the father made a fool of himself. He did things that no respectable man would ever think of doing when his son came home. That's what I mean, abandoning your sense of respectability, your status in the community, whatever. That's what Mary did. You see, in her culture, the Jewish culture of the day, the lowest servant would wash the feet of the master and all his guests. What did she do that day? She washed the feet of her Lord. She made herself as a servant, sacrificed her respectability. Not only that. But in that day and age, and indeed, I can I can say even today, perhaps, that a woman would never let her hair down in public in the presence of men, never mind to 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 then take that hair and wipe away the ointment from the feet of a man. She sacrificed her respectability, but she didn't care. It was a spontaneous expression of love. And of course, the one that people recognize as well is she sacrificed her own wealth was hers. I mean, that perfume was worth a fortune. It, it, it was, as Judas is going to calculate it, 300 denarii. I don't know how he knew that, by the way, but I guess he was really masterful at how much things cost, probably because he knew how much he could get for them if he stole it. But in any event, he was a money guy, so we, I'll take him at his word that it was 300 denarii. And that, that's a year's wages. I mean, calculate that today and say to yourself, who would I be willing to take a year's wages and waste it on. I don't know what your wages, and that's none of my business. We don't tithe, okay? But I want you to think about that number, okay? And we can do it objectively. Like, I think the average income for a household in the United States today is like 65000 or something. Who is it that you would take $65,000 on and waste it in a day for? That's a heck of a standard. That's what Mary did. You know, nard, this nard, was made from plants that are only grown in one place. And it wasn't Palestine. It was northern India. Now, remember, in that day and age, people walked and they rode animals. We're talking thousands of miles away. Somebody had to, and it's only there, okay? So valuable. And somebody had to take it from there and essentially walk it. Maybe traded along the way. I don't know how that worked. It was precious. It was costly. And this nod was pure, 100%. And that made it even more valuable and precious. But for Mary, nothing was too good for Jesus. Because not only did she sacrifice her respectability, sacrifice her wealth, she poured out everything else she had, poured out her love, poured out her devotion. How better way, how more loving way could one show your devotion to somebody than to throw your respectability to the wind her love her devotion her gratitude that's a gift by the way that's a gift perhaps you should think about giving somebody soon yes god but how about other people how often do you tell somebody you know i'm never going to forget what you did for me i'm so grateful that you did that that's a gift it takes something to do that if you poured out her humility that day. And she poured out her worship. I want you to think about that. Think about what it means for you 
to give everything you have in worship. It's a challenge, isn't it? It's a challenge. Now, I'm not talking about becoming a tongue speaker, right? Or go or losing you. You know, I'm talking about in the heart. Do, you know, when it, when it's time to worship, do you consider that now? Out of my gratitude, out of my humility, out of my devotion, I'm going to worship with everything I got. Not to make you feel guilty, but to set a standard for the future. Please turn to John chapter 12, verse 4. John chapter 12, verse 4. Some butts in the Bible are good. Some butts in the Bible are bad. We're about to come across a butt in the Bible that's bad. It's always a transition, right? A great butt was that we were we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God loving us. That's a good one. There's a bad one. Just finished looking at Mary's worship, and now chapter 12, verse 4, but Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to poor people? Now, he said this not because he was concerned about the poor. Throw that idea out. A lot of people want to say, what, Jesus Jesus is saying we shouldn't take care of the poor? That's ridiculous. The book of Deuteronomy says it. Many other places, he said it. No, it's the fact that Judas wasn't concerned at all about the poor. He was a thief, and as he had the money box, interesting, right? He used to pilfer what was put into it, you know, this shows you how unimportant money was to Jesus. He knew he had a thief in the camp and he said, here, here's all the money. Of course, Jesus was the guy who could just take a fish out of the water and find a coin in it, too. So, I mean, let's be, you know, balanced there. Verse seven. Therefore, Jesus said to him, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. Ha. Now we see. What's been searched, what's been here all along, which is the impending death of Jesus. They didn't want to think about that. Judas certainly didn't want to think about that until he participated in it. We'll see why in a minute. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. You see, Jesus, I mean, Judas didn't love Jesus and he didn't love God. He didn't follow Jesus for those three plus years because he loved him. He didn't follow Jesus for those three plus years because he believed in him. He, he followed Jesus very simply for what he thought he could get out of the deal. And some people do the same thing, by the way, about gathering together with the royal family, with the body of Christ. They're not there to, to love God, to love Jesus, to love the body. Really, if they're being honest, they're loving, they're coming to what they can get out of it, you know, on a small level. All right. People will say, I didn't get much out of the message today. Right. Well, maybe you weren't there to get something out of the message. Maybe you were there to participate in the love of the body of Christ. Now, does that mean you shouldn't receive? You should always receive from the message. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about attitude. Attitude. They didn't recognize my my music gift, so I'm leaving, for example. I'm uncomfortable with somebody in the congregation, so therefore my social life is kind of being impinged. I'm out of here. In the short run, he thought he could get money out of the treasury, but he was also ultimately aiming higher than that. He expected Jesus to become the king of the realm, and he figured then when that happens, I'm going to hit the jackpot. So when it became apparent that this was not going to happen, that Jesus had infuriated the ruling class to the point where they sought his death, Jesus now had started talking about his persecution, his humiliation, his death. That was purely, simply unacceptable to Judas. And now Judas couldn't get anything more out of following Jesus. So now he's about to come up with another way of cashing in, as it were, on the position he held in the twelve. Judas served his own interests, period. The opposite of love is to serve your own interests, period. It's important to see the period, by the way. We're all going to have to serve our own interests. and We can't survive without taking care of food and clothing and all of that. I'm not talking, but the period is the problem, you see. He loved something else. 
He loved this present world and he loves money. Look at Matthew chapter 6, verse 24 to see what Jesus had to say about that, about loving money. Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. Same challenge, by the way. Jesus is going to talk about love and hate here. Watch it. John, Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Mary knew who her master was, and, and she served him. Well, Judas had a master, too, but it wasn't Jesus. Notice, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Which do you think Judas did? Did he serve God or did he serve wealth? The answer is obvious. Of course, of wealth. Yeah, see, wealth becomes a terrible master. You know, if you if you don't watch yourself, your pursuit of money will take over everything else in your life, including the worship of God. But you see, it's even deeper with Judas. He hated the light, loved the darkness. He was just like his father, the devil. We don't have time for the passage right now, but it, it's in John chapter. Whoops, we're not going to go there yet. Well, it's in John chapter eight, but at one point first, because we see all this with Judas now, is about to act. Judas was willing to lie, to cheat, to steal, and even murder to get what he wanted. Think about that. Think about that. That's the depth to which human depravity can go when somebody is single-minded on something that is not not God, not what's good for others, but only for themselves. You see, Judas was just like his father, the devil, in the interest of time. And we've been there before in John 8, 42 to 45. If you're fast, you can go there. I'm just going to read it right now. Jesus said to them, the Pharisees, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. I have not even come on my own initiative, but God sent me. Why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. Why? You are of your father, the devil. See, Jesus never pulled any punches. You're the father, you're your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He could be speaking about Judas right now. Perhaps he was. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth. Those go together because there's no truth in him. And wherever he, whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks of his own nature. The very nature of Satan is to be a liar and the father of lies. John chapter, as we end today, John chapter 12, I think you're there. Are you? No, we were, I took you away in Matthew. Go back to John chapter 12, verses 7 and 8. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. But you always have the poor with you. You do not always have me. At this point, Jesus intervenes. Judas was definitely not going to have the last word. In fact, at this moment, Jesus exposed Judas for the hypocrite that he was. He was not interested in the poor. If he had been interested in the poor, he would have had many opportunities to help them. And there's no indication that he ever did. He was a fraud. No, the issue was is that he refused to honor or worship Jesus. Think of it, though. He squandered the greatest opportunity imaginable. He walked with Jesus, the Son of God, for three years. He heard him speak. He saw the miracles, but refused to believe the depths of depravity. That's the darkness. But Jesus vindicated Mary in another way as well, because he knew if nobody else did except Mary herself, why Mary anointed his feet. Mary knew that the time of his departure drew near. None of the other disciples believed it yet, but she did. So she honored him the best way that she could all the ways that she could, sacrificially, lovingly, humbly. Let's go to Mark chapter 14, verse 6, as we close this morning. Mark 14, verse 6. 
it's it's very you know again this is another probably this uh, it's the, it's it's Mary once again anointing the feet of the Lord maybe the same event as John maybe not doesn't matter Mark fourteen six Jesus said let her alone why do you bother her she has done a good deed to me you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. And that that came to be because the gospels captured it. And that's when that's the gospel that has gone out to the whole world. Verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And they were glad when they heard this and promised to give him what he really wanted, money. And he began seeking now to betray him at the opportune time. And never has the difference between a child of light and a child of darkness been more obvious. You know, Jesus didn't come to bring peace, he said one time. He said, I've come to bring a sword. And Simeon, when Jesus was born and Mary brought him to the temple, told her that this child is appointed for for many to rise and fall and for a sign to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul. Why? To the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And let me just say, the hearts of Mary and of Judas were laid bare that day in Bethany. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning. We thank you for what you've done for us. We thank you that you gave us the most precious person in the universe and had him sacrifice for us when we are your enemies. There's no greater love than that. There's no greater love than Jesus laying down his life, dying on a cross so that others may have eternal life. And Father, we we thank you, too, this morning that we can have two graphic examples of the opposite, the opposites, response of love, response of hate. And so we ask this morning, Father, that we would be diligent and motivated to make sure that we have responses of love in our lives, that we be light and salt to the world, that we live now as the child of light that you have made us to be. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. By the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. See you on Thursday. Hope you all come on for the Bible study we always have at Thursday at 6.30. And um, since we're talking about money today, I do want to remind everybody that um, we don't take offerings. You probably noticed that by now. Okay, we don't take offerings. It doesn't mean that the your call to, to, to give to the cause of Christ is going away. We haven't wiped that out. How, how dare we, right? No, but it's just that we don't want to put people on the spot. We don't tithe. We don't have drives. None of that. Okay? When you are motivated to give, okay, then we have ways where you can do that by mail. Um, but most people today go online, right, to our website. And you can do that. But always... Remember the motivation, right? It should be giving out of love, sacrificially, if possible. Um, you don't have, I bet you like, but other guys probably don't like when I say that we don't have to give to the church. Okay, the idea is to give out of your desire to see the Lord's work done. Okay, including to help brothers and sisters in need, if that becomes something that is put before you. But also, sure, I mean, I mean, the thing about giving is not just to say, well, the church has bills, okay, which is true. No, but it's, it's an expression of I desire to have the word of God continue to be preached. And I think that this ministry does a decent job of it. So it's not about us. That's what Paul said. No, the gift goes to you, even though the money goes to us. Okay. I don't like talking about money. That's why I hardly ever do it. But I figured today. Some people wonder, and that's our policy. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our ability to come here in freedom still, and whether we're in person or online, to hear the word of God and to 
to, to understand that your love is the motivation for what you have done and that you sacrificed your son because of sin getting in the way and you wanted it removed. And so you gave the most precious thing you had, most precious person in the universe. Help us never to get used to that. Help us always to turn to that again and to understand what it meant and means for us so that we may have, have genuine love and gratitude for you. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.